Welcome to the Melton Forge Works podcast. I'm going to take you along on my day-to-day adventures in bladesmithing and blacksmithing. I'll be talking about the people involved in the craft and the tools and the methods that go along with it. So thanks for listening. Okay, it's Saturday morning. I think it's May the 2nd. Um, This is going to be episode 22. Um, I thought I might talk a little quote-unquote inside baseball on Forged in Fire. I've I've uh, I've recently heard that they're cranking up the uh, the auditioning and maybe the filming for the next season. And whenever that happens, um, inevitably I get questions from guys that are going on the show that want to ask, you know, about how they should do their, their interview or um, what kind of tools they should take on the set. Um, you know, just a, a few things like that that I can kind of cover uh, in this podcast that might be helpful to other people that are thinking about going on the show. Um, and if you didn't know, um, I was on season five, episode 20. It was called The Small Sword. That was our episode. So, um, but I thought I might cover some of that stuff in a podcast just to uh, kind of document it a little bit. And I don't think anything that I'm going to say is going to violate any kind of a confidentiality agreement or anything like that. But um, anyway, I thought I would cover that a little bit in some of the segments in this show coming up. So um, we'll do that some. <clears throat> I did get out in the shop last night and I worked on a ramp die for the 88, which is basically just a bottom die that is ramped at like a... I don't know, 25, 35 degree angle, something like that. And so the top flat die comes down and meets a lower die that is ramped. And you can place material on it and uh, make tapers really quickly. And uh, so that'll help with making uh, things like hammer-eye drifts and other stuff like that. So um, I worked on that some. And the first one I made failed. Uh, the, the actual ramp die itself was just a slice of three inch by three quarter plate. And I sliced it on my bandsaw at kind of an angle. So I had this wide triangle that I was going to weld down to some pieces of angle iron to make the lower die. And I did that and it, that all worked. But the, uh, the way I'd angled the, or the way I'd welded the angle iron together just didn't work. And so on like the second hit of me testing it, uh, it broke apart. Um, the, uh, the angle iron did. So I got to figure out a different way to make the, the base plate that'll go over my lower die, uh, better. So I'm either going to forge that out or just take three pieces of flat plate steel and weld those together into like a, almost like a piece of C-channel that'll just rest on the die. So that'll probably be the next thing I'll work on in the shop. I'm not going to get much done today or tomorrow. We're, we're driving to go see some family. And uh, so 
I won't I won't get out in the shop today, but I'll get back to it. So the the next segment coming up will probably be uh, a little bit of that uh, forged and fire talk. And so if you're not interested in uh, hearing anything about the show or kind of my experience um, about applying for and getting on the show, um, just skip ahead to the next episode. So see you shortly. All right, it's uh, Monday, May the 4th. I'm out during my lunch break. Had to actually run into the, into the hospital this morning for work. And uh, I thought I would take a minute and talk a little bit about the top questions I get from other people who are interested in uh, going on Forged in Fire. So um, I'll cover... I think I'm going to cover just a few main topics. The first of which will be the time required. Uh, the second, um, the tools that you take on set. And then the third, just kind of my overall, you know, opinion of the experience uh, of, of applying for the show. Not my experience on the show, but just my experience applying for the show. So first and foremost, the, the time required to actually go and participate as a contestant on Forged in Fire is probably more significant than most people think. So, um, for those of you that don't know about Forged in Fire, it's a it's a TV uh, reality type show that is based around uh, bladesmithing, and uh, four contestants usually are given a random chunk of metal or random set of materials that they're then supposed to make a a knife from and it happens in three rounds so there's a first round a second round and then a final third round Um, and the show happens over the course of an hour uh, minus commercial breaks and all that but the time requirement to film one episode uh, if you go all the way to the end as a finalist is about two and a half weeks so you, uh, once you go through the application process, which I'll, I'll touch on that at the end a little bit, but uh, once you go through the application process and you are, are selected to go on the show and you fly to Connecticut, you fly into New York and then drive down to Connecticut to do the filming, that typically happens uh, from a Sunday to Friday over one week. And that will cover rounds one and two. For the show so you'll film round one on day one you'll finish up some of round one on day two and you'll start round two on the second day and so forth until you get to the end of the week and uh, you've done all your eliminations and it's just down to the two finalists and so so the time commitment just for rounds one and two is is a full week and so you've got to make the decision if you can take that time off away from your current uh, job in order to do that. So if, if you don't make it to round three, you're, you're definitely going to spend at least a week. Um, so if you make it as a finalist and you leave on that, let's say you leave on that Friday after filming the first week, the film crew might show up at your house within a day or two. You know, they might show up right away. It might be a few days. And so uh, when they do show up to film, you're given between 
four and five days, depending on the season, to uh, to work on your finale weapon. And so that happens over five days. You're given. I was given four ten-hour days and one eight-hour day to complete the work. Um, and they're you know they they're really good with the rules and the fairness, and they make sure that you know you're on the clock and you're working for those ten hours each day. And then when when that time is up, you know you have to leave your workspace, and they. You know, they photograph your work to make sure you're not up in the middle of the night, you know, getting stuff done that that your opponent uh, can't also get done. And so they try to make the time requirement equal. But my point is, that's an entire week. So if you make it to the third round, you're in for two weeks of time, plus the time to go back and film the finale where they do the destruction testing on the last two weapons. So that usually takes two to three days because you've got to have a day of travel to get there, a day to film that, usually just one day, and then a day to fly back home. So um, unless you're local, you know, to to the Connecticut area, then your time requirements might be uh, a little less. But for me, uh, I went through all three all three rounds, and my my time requirement to go and film one episode of Fortune and Fire was about two and a half weeks. And so, that's something that you need to consider if you're thinking about doing this. Can you take two and a half weeks away from your family and from your job and what other whatever other responsibilities you have? And, and I realize that is not an insignificant amount of time and it, it, it you know, it, it, it takes a lot of time. <laughs> so anyway, so the time requirements can be up to two and a half weeks. Uh, the other question I get a lot is, um, they allow you to take tools on the set. And so when I filmed my episode in season five, which was in 2018, uh, they told us we could bring six tools with us to Connecticut, but then we would only be able to bring three of those six on the set. So, um, I'll say this at the beginning. Anybody that knows their way around a bladesmithing shop doesn't need to take any tools with them, period. They have everything you need to complete the challenge in round one and two in their set uh, forge. So, you know, most guys wind up taking the hammer that they're most most comfortable with. They might wind up taking a favorite uh, set of tongs or some specialty tool or something like that. But you you are required to tell them up front what six tools you're thinking of bringing. And then it's up to them to tell you whether or not uh, that's allowed or not. And so for me, when I went up there, I took a couple of different hammers. I took two different sets of tongs and then a flatter. So like a top tool, you know, used to flatten material out. And then when I went on the set, I wound up just taking one set of tongs, the flatter, and my hammer, uh, my two and a half pound 
rounding hammer is what I took. So um, you get some you get some leeway in the tools that you get to choose to take on the set, but it's it's not very much. And again, you really don't need it. Had I not brought any tools with me, I don't think it would have affected the outcome uh, for me one bit. Um, they have decent hammers, decent decent um, tongs for holding blades, uh, things like that. Now, the one thing I noticed that they didn't have when I was there was they didn't have really heavy tongs. So if you're needing to grab uh, some kind of big material uh, with tongs, um, they didn't really have tongs sized for large material, nor did they have tongs that were heavy duty. So if you were like putting a piece of spring, uh, coiled up spring in a vise, and you want to try to open it up, uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't have access on their set at the time. That is, you wouldn't have access to like a really heavy pair of bolt tongs, you know, to maybe grab the end of that spring and and try to open it up. And so that's one reason why you see guys on the show whenever they have to do something like that a lot of times they run to the scrap bucket in the corner of the set and they grab a piece of pipe you know to try to open material up so anyway maybe heavy tongs is something i would suggest but um really unless you want some kind of favorite hammer uh with you i, I really just didn't see a whole uh, a big need to take a bunch of tools with me uh, after having gone through it um, and then, you know, just finally, my, my thoughts on the application process uh, start to finish. So to go on Forged in Fire, you email one of the casting company people, and, and they are widely uh, available online. They, whenever they are casting for the show, you know, you'll see it on, in various social media groups. Um, you just submit an email saying that you want to go on the show and they they will give you a questionnaire to fill out. And that questionnaire is about 20 to 25 questions long and it, and it gives them a baseline idea of whether or not you understand some basic principles of blacksmithing and, um, you know, some basic steel material um, knowledge. Uh, and, you know, basic heat treating and steel selection kind of questions. Um, and then a few questions just about you and your personal background. Um, and once you submit that, uh, if you make it past the questionnaire, then they will try and set up a phone call. And after the phone call, then they'll set up a Skype call, like a video call with you. And really what they just, what they're trying to do is they're just trying to get a feel for you as a person and to see how you react on camera. Um, you know, whether or not you're super nervous being on camera, talking to somebody or just how you carry yourself on camera. And, uh, and then once you go through the video call, uh, if they like what they see, um, they also they also ask for pictures of your work, and occasionally they ask for video of you uh, doing uh, some forging, some blade forging. So once they look at all that material and you've gone through all the the video calls and all that, then they'll tell you whether or not you're going to go on the show. And then once you make it on the show, so to speak. Um, you basically have to wait 
until they tell you when your episode is going to be filmed, and that can take weeks or it can take months. And so in my case, when, uh, when I got through the application process for season five, uh, they said, great, we like what we see, we want you on the show, um, we'll be in touch. And so when I asked for clarification about what that meant, what they told me was, we are filming uh, episodes for this season over the next four to five months. We will try to give you as much lead time as possible so that you know uh, when you're going to need to get on a plane and fly out. And so I talked to some guys in season five that were given weeks worth of notice and some guys were given days notice. And so in my case, I finished the application process around December, January 17, 18. And I filmed my episode in April of 18, but I didn't know that I was going to film in April until like the end of March. And so I think I had about three or four weeks where they, uh, they gave me a call and said, okay, your episode is going to air on this day. Here's your flight information. Uh, this person is going to get you your tickets, um, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so I had about three or four weeks of lead time, but up until that point, you know, I was kind of just waiting for a call. And so, um, so it was several months for me waiting to hear when I was actually going to go film. And then once I got through with the filming uh, process, which again took about two and a half weeks, uh, once I got done with that, um, it was July before my episode uh, aired uh, on the History Channel. So it's a long, drawn-out process to go from the application to get on the show to your your episode actually appearing, you know, uh, on television. So for me, that was uh, applying around the first of the year, filming in April, and then having the show appear in July. So anyway, I hope that helps. That uh, If you're thinking about going on the show, that might give you an idea of what to expect uh, in that regard. Um, I don't know. If, if I get enough interest in it, I might do a podcast episode where I talk kind of just about my experience as a contestant you know, uh, kind of what happened during rounds one, two, and three and all that. Um, if anybody's interested, but, um, anyway, I think I'm going to wrap this segment up by, uh, just talking about the application experience. So hope that helped and I'll see you next time. Okay. It's uh Wednesday morning, about nine o'clock. Um, I'm off work today. <clears throat> I just did a little bit of a exercise session. Got a stationary bike, a spin bike in the house. Um, went and did that for a little bit. Now I'm walking off some of the heat. But um, I thought I would catch up with where I'm at this week. So uh, I did a little talk about the Forged in Fire application experience. And um, so anyway, I was just going to tell you what I've been doing in the shop otherwise. Um I've been cutting more material for crosses, finishing that up, and uh, let's see, did I, t- I don't know if I told you, but I think I, g- I told you in the last episode that I got my bandsaw issues sorted out. Um, I went and bought a shorter bandsaw blade 
which allowed me to get a little more tension. Um, I think things have just kind of stretched out on that saw a little bit over the years. And um, it's been adjusted and adjusted. But anyway, that seems to have really helped. And so I got that sorted. And then I started um, working on another one of those adjustable drifting jigs. Um, I've been working out how to manufacture those a little bit faster so that I can offer those for sale. I've had several people ask me um, if I'd be willing to make one for them. So I've kind of been working out my measurements and process for that a little bit. And I uh, oh, went dealing with a burn. Man, I got burned. I think it was... So we were gone over the weekend. And so Friday, I was forging out another one of those one-pound billets. And I mishit the billet, and it flipped into the air and just brushed the inside of my left forearm. I mean, when I say brushed, I mean, it just kind of barely bounced off the inside of my forearm and I, I smelled it before I felt any discomfort or anything from it. I could smell this burned, you know, this burned hair kind of burned flesh kind of smell. And I went, uh-oh. And so I looked at my arm and I really couldn't see, I really couldn't see any problem. I could see kind of a little slight red mark and I thought, well, you know, that'll turn red or something for a day or two but man the billet was glowing orange so it was you know it was 1500 or so and um, apparently <laughs> it doesn't take long for an orange glowing piece of steel to give you a severe burn and so over the next couple of days that spot got really bad and um, I wound up having to make a, a telemedicine call I called the doctor and uh, sent him some pictures and all that and he prescribed some silver sulfidine. And uh, for those of you that have been around metalworking for a while, uh, this won't be any kind of a surprise to you, but that is a miracle cream for burns. So if you ever get burned really bad in the shop, there's two things I know that you can do to help with those burns. The first thing is pine tar. Just, just get some kind of the thick, pine tar you can get at like a farrier supply store and rub that on the burn that that helps zap the pain pretty quick and it provides kind of a uh, a protective coating and i think it has some antiseptic qualities as well and so pine tar works really good for immediate relief but um, if it's a bad enough burn where you've got multiple layers of skin that are damaged the silver sulfidine cream is what you need to get, and it's prescription strength stuff, so you have to call a doctor to get it. <clears throat> but, you know, um, it works really good. So, anyway, that's all I wanted to say about that was if you get burned really bad, go get some of this silver sulfidine stuff. It's really, really good. Um, and let's see. Oh, I got a shipment of some steel in from a friend in Texas some really big thick pieces of 5160 and uh, I'm going to use that to make some more fullering dies for the 88. This stuff is uh, like it's like three quarter inch thick leaf spring 
and it's kind of rounded on one edge and it makes perfect fullering dies. I can just cut a slice of it and, uh, and weld it down to a plate and it makes a perfect fullering die. So I'm gonna make some of those for the 88 since that stuff came in. But um, I'm off work today. I've got another couple of projects around the house I'm gonna try to knock out. And um, anyway, I'll uh, talk to you later. Bye. Hey, it's still Wednesday. It's in the afternoon now. It's about six o'clock almost. I, uh, I was off work today, so I, I did some stuff in the shop. A friend of mine brought a, a, uh, a piece of metal that they use as a hook on the back of a paper baler. So this is a company that um, recycles a bunch of paper, and they have this big machine that bales up these recycled wads of paper. And they had this huge... I'll say huge. It was a thick, like half inch piece of steel, about seven or eight inches long. And it was hooked so that when the baler went up, this hook would kind of automatically latch onto part of the baler and lock. And somehow that baler is a hydraulic system and somehow the handle got, uh, I don't know, oriented in the wrong direction or something, and that hydraulic system pushed on it and just ripped that old handle to pieces. And so he came to me about a week ago and asked if I could fabricate or forge a stronger version of that. And it's just, it was simple. It was just a simple forging, a simple piece of, of half-inch plate that I forged into this, I don't know, kind of a fat candy cane shape with a hole in the bottom so that they could um, attach a little clevis pin to it. But anyway, I got that done for him today, and I used the 88 to do a lot of that forging. I, uh, I don't think I hit it with a hand hammer one time. Uh, I did use the press just a little bit to reduce the width of the material. I think the material I had was a little thicker than half. And I know this baler hook couldn't be any thicker than half, so I had to squish it down a little bit with the press to get it to the right thickness. But um, I was able to use the 88 to um, curl that top part of the candy cane shape down. And, you know, this was like an eight or nine inch piece of steel that I stuck between the dies and just was able to tap down and push that thing into place. And it, it was just a really great example of one thing that an air hammer or a self-contained air hammer uh, does that most other mechanical hammers just can't do. And that is forge things in between such a large space. So the dies on the 88 uh, open up way larger than most mechanical hammers do. And so that allows you to put really tall pieces in there. And um, you can't get a full force blow, but with an 88 pound ram, you know, even small taps are, uh, are pretty effective. So that was really neat being able to use the hammer in that way. Um, and certainly I, I wasn't able to do that with the 33 because while it did have a good bit of clearance between the dies, it didn't have as much as this 88 has. So anyway, I was able to uh, 
use some top tools to kind of forge in the, the curved hook part. And then um, I was able to stand it up between the dies and kind of tap it down into play uh, or into place. I took some video and posted it on Instagram of that process. You can see a little bit of that uh, if you want to go back and look. But um, that was kind of fun. And then uh, that kind of did it for the shop time today. I finished welding up the adjustable uh, drifting jig that I was making. And then I had a family project I needed to get done. We've got a, a playhouse that my father and I built when the kids were a lot younger. And it's, I mean, it's, it's like a really nice playhouse. It's more of a shed than a playhouse now. But uh, one side of the wall of that playhouse was sitting a little too close to the ground and it's taken a lot of water damage. So I spent the remainder of the day ripping plywood off the side of that shed and uh, finding out that I had a ton of water damaged wood that I've got to cut out. So my free time over the next day or two is going to be spent uh, ripping all that rotten wood out, building a temporary wall inside the shed and then uh, building the new wall and reinforcing the joists and all that good times lots of fun but one of those things that's got to be done so anyway that's what i'm gonna finish the week out doing so this is probably going to be it for this podcast so i'll see you next time Hey, that does it for episode 22. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. You guys just continue to knock me out with all these cool comments and questions that come up from the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's really, really been a lot of fun. Um, I've got a pretty cool project coming up over the next uh, couple of episodes that I'm going to talk about. Um, it's got a little bit of Mississippi history in it. So anyway, stay tuned. I'll talk about it next in uh, episode 23. So see you then. Thanks. Bye.